Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. This week, we'll discuss Tom Hayes, a former star trader at UBS and Citigroup, who's been found guilty of eight counts of conspiring to rig LIBOR, the first conviction in the global scandal over the manipulation of benchmark interest rates. We'll also look at how shares in Greek banks have plummeted for the second day running after the country's stock markets reopened. And finally, we'll examine the UK government's decision to start selling shares in Royal Bank of Scotland, kicking off the biggest ever British privatisation process. Joining me in the studio today are Richard Stoven bradford our Lex correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and Lindsay Fortado, our legal correspondent. Starting with LIBOR. Lindsay, so just talk us through what's happened this week. Well, after the jury deliberated for a week, Tom Hayes was found guilty on all eight counts. It was a nine-week trial. He's found to have conspired with more than 20 other traders and brokers at different banks and interdealer brokers. He worked with them to rig yen LIBOR in order to benefit his own trading positions. And he moved from doing this at UBS to then moving to the US bank Citigroup and attempted to do the same thing and was fired within a year Correct. of moving to Citigroup when they discovered what he was trying to do. Yep. He was successful in rigging the rate at UBS. Prosecutors say that he attempted to rig Yen Libor on almost a daily basis while he was at UBS. He left UBS in late 2009 over a dispute over pay. Um, when he joined Citigroup, he slowly tried to test the waters with the other traders there, with the rate setters, and see what he could get away with. But as soon as Citigroup found out what he was doing, it took a few months, but they slowly detected it and um, started an internal investigation and reported him and fired him. And just to take a step back, I mean, this is a massive financial scandal that's done untold damage to the image of banks yeah. worldwide. And LIBOR, the benchmark he was attempting to manipulate, is hugely important because mm -hmm. it sets the price of trillions of dollars of financial products, mortgages, loans around the world yep. are all priced on this. So any change in it would have affected how much people pay for their mortgages, how much companies pay for their debt. So incredibly important. But still... I had a call from a banker that works for one of the banks that Mr. Hayes used to work for just this morning, you know, shocked at the 14-year prison sentence that he's been handed down and comparing it with Kweku Adaboli, the rogue trader at UBS, who got seven years for a $2.3 billion fraud. So saying, you know, why is it so severe? It's the longest sentence that I've ever seen for a financial fraud case in the UK. Second to this was Magnus Peterson. He was the founder of Weavering Capital. It was about a $500 million hedge fund. Was that, that this year or last year? He was sentenced in January this yeah. year, but the hedge fund collapsed a few years ago. Yeah. 13 years was a huge sentence. So these sentences are getting tougher, it seems, they for, for white-collar crime. They're in getting UK. tougher. Mm. And for the insider trading cases, we've only seen five-year sentences at the very most. I mean, that holds a seven-year sentence. 
But the judge in this case said that he wanted to send a message. He wanted to highlight how important the LIBOR benchmark is and send a message to the banking industry that what Tom Hayes did was dishonest and wrong. Right. And also, did Tom Hayes perhaps pay the price for strategic errors? You know, that he initially pleaded guilty, then he decided to change his plea after many hours of testimony, and that may backfired. Yes. He gave 82 hours worth of evidence to the SFO. He gave names of individuals that he worked with. He gave his methodology. He explained everything to the serious fraud office. And then he decided to take a gamble and go to trial instead. He said during the trial, he testified that he felt like he was becoming a political football between American prosecutors and the UK prosecutors, and that angered him. And as a result, he thought that he should go before a jury and have 12 people decide his fate. And that's well, what he did. That's an interesting part of this whole case, because initially the SFO decided not to investigate LIBOR, and then after Correct. Barclays was fined for LIBOR manipulation, the first bank to be fined mm-hmm. in 2012, ultimately leading to the exit of Bob Diamond, its chief executive, the government pushed the SFO to launch an investigation. And there was a bit of a fight, wasn't there, over Tom Hayes and his extradition or where where he should be tried in the US or in the UK. And the UK ultimately won out. So this was very important from that respect, too. They did. And they partly won out just because Hayes was here in England. He'd returned here after he lost his job in Tokyo at Citigroup. But the U.S. felt like they had been investigating him for several years. They had built up a case. They wanted to go after him. And the serious fraud office under their previous director had declined to take on a LIBOR investigation. It wasn't until that Barclays fine when George Osborne, Chancellor of the Exchequer, pretty much told the SFO that they needed to investigate this case that it was taken on. And they got special funding to do so, didn't they? So this is a really important moment for the SFO, which is an agency that's under some political pressure, I think it's right to say. No, absolutely. Theresa May... The British Home Secretary. The British Home Secretary, yes. As recently as October last year, indicated that she was still interested in folding in the SFO to the National Crime Agency and disbanding it. So to have a win like this is huge for the SFO. And it's also huge for David Green, the director, who's waiting on a discussion with government later this month as to whether or not he'll get a second term. With this big win in their belt, we can expect some more trials of other LIBOR suspects in the near future? There's already two scheduled to go ahead, one in September of six individuals and another one in January, which is a separate strand of the LIBOR investigation. Those are both in London. There are also suspects that have been charged in the US. Right. So there's transatlantic investigations going on. But this verdict should give the SFO confidence to go ahead and go after some of the alleged co-conspirators in the Hayes case. What do you think about how the future trials and this trial itself will continue to damage the reputation of the banking industry as a result of the new facts that emerge as a result of these trials and also all the media coverage of these trials? There's a certain level of fatigue, I think, to benchmark scandals. We've seen so many LIBOR fines and so many instances of wrongdoing. We've seen all the trader chats. We've seen all the FX fines now. And there's a bit of a sense that this is historic, that there's not a concern that this is going to happen again in the future. There have been benchmark reforms. You know, the rates are becoming regulated now. The senior manager's regime, which will take effect next year, should hold people accountable in the industry. So I don't think there's the sense that this is something that's going to necessarily happen again in the next couple of years. So it's still damaging to the industry. It's still sort of a constant reminder, but it's not uncovering anything new. It's evidence that we've already seen. 
Okay, so some evidence of LIBOR fatigue, but the trials continue. The trials continue. Okay, thanks very much, Lindsay. Turning to another unhappy story, that of Greece and the Greek banks. Richard Stephen Bradford from the Lex team has been writing about this. Richard, the Greek banks fell out of bed on Monday when the country's stock markets reopened for trading, having been closed for five weeks. And it looks like the country's been through a pretty traumatic experience. But um, what is this share price reaction telling us? They're not out of the woods yet, clearly. Absolutely. The four banks, the main ones, Alpha, Eurobank, National Bank of Greece and Piraeus are all down between 25 and 30 percent again today, Tuesday. The real issue here is that the European Union's July 12th communique, which said that they would recapitalise or provide up to 25 billion euros to recapitalise European banks, is going to take some time to get rolling. And unfortunately, the summer period intervenes. And this is, if you like, a European fix that gets us over the summer. But yesterday, the stock market regulator told the banks that they must come up with something to reassure the market. And if you like, did virtually the opposite, because the shares fell the 30% down to their limit. The real problem is just that there's no real momentum to get on with recapitalizing the banks reforming the banks and actually rebuilding them. There are four perfectly good banks there caught up in a problem not of their own making. Yeah, I mean, the banks were profitable before the country's sovereign debt crisis hit them. And they were the victims of this rather than the causes of it. And in their statements that they put out yesterday, as you said, they didn't do a very good job of reassuring the market. But they did say that the outflow of deposits with a lot of their customers withdrawing their deposits, fearful that they might be converted into drachma at some point, that has slowed down or or virtually stopped. So there does seem to be that sort of shoring up of their deposit base. So that's good news. But clearly, there does need to be some kind of structural solution here, doesn't there? It does. We've come down the deposit outflow. If you look at how much the four banks have had to draw down in European Central Bank funding, the total number is up to 125 billion euros. That deposit outflow, which was being plugged by the money from the European Central Bank, has stopped. But what really needs to happen here is we must get clarity on what's been happening while the banks were closed for three weeks earlier this summer and the general economic slowdown that is gripping Greece now. So what we're watching particularly closely is the bank's non-performing loans or their bad loans. Those are loans that haven't been repaid for 90 days. And there's a risk here that because of some of the government rhetoric, a lot of borrowers are saying, well, maybe I don't need to pay back if I'm going to get a little bit of help from the government or maybe I can write off debt or something. So there's a risk in the system that some people will feel less inclined to repay. So the next few weeks are critical. Banks need to get on with their regulator, again, the European Central Bank, and start going through exactly how these loan repayments are shaping up. And only then can we decide, once we've got an idea of how badly the loan book is performing, what their capital needs will be, then comes some of that $25 billion then there will be real stability. So rather like Mr Draghi's talk of he'll do whatever it takes, we've got a bit of support which has calmed nerves, but the real hard work is now going on these few weeks over the summer while the banks get to the bottom of how bad things really are in the underlying economy. Okay, sounds like a lot of work to be done. We'll be watching closely. Thanks a lot, Richard. Now, turning to Royal Bank of Scotland, overnight on Monday, the Chancellor George Osborne took the fairly momentous decision to start selling down the government's almost 80% stake in the bank, which is held for some seven years and which initially 
cost the taxpayer £45 billion to rescue at the height of the crisis. So Emma Dunkley is here to tell us exactly what has been sold and what's been the, the reaction to it. Yes, well, as you mentioned, it's a significant move for a number of reasons. It's the biggest ever UK privatisation of what was once the world's biggest bank that received a record bailout during the financial crisis. It also marks a watershed moment as the last big bank that has yet to begin the privatisation process. Now that's underway. So this is a significant move, emblematic, if you like, of the banks in the UK now moving away from the financial crisis and leaving it as a thing of the past. So the government announced last night that it was starting an overnight book build, selling about 5.4% of its 78% stake to about 150 institutional investors. About 40% of that is long-only funds and the other 60% is hedge funds. And these shares were sold at about a 2% discount at 330p and raised some £2.1 billion. It was worth saying as well that it was oversubscribed by about 2.4 times, so investors were seemingly keen to buy in. And that discount was lower than the discount that investors were offered when the government started selling shares in Lloyd's two years ago, which suggests that the Chancellor's timing on this is not all bad. However, the reaction today has been pretty critical of George Osborne's timing on this one, certainly from a political point of view, because the £3.30 per share that they sold at is well below the £5.2 p of the overall in price that it cost the previous government to this bank out seven years ago. That's right. So just by way of comparison, the Lloyds shares were sold to institutional investors, the first tranche at just over a 3% discount and the second tranche at about 4.6%. So it is less. And the sale has incurred a 1.1 billion loss for taxpayers, which has really disgruntled arguably taxpayers, but also Labour MPs who we've spoken to who have noted that perhaps this isn't the best timing for the first sale of shares. They also note that the shares were trading at 400p earlier in the year, so why didn't they start selling off then? Speaking to Conservative MPs uh, and a Treasury source, they note that in fact it wasn't an opportune moment to start selling earlier in the year because the bank hadn't actually laid out its restructuring plans and there were also significant macroeconomic issues, including Greece that hit earlier in spring and the election as well, which was another uncertainty that needed to be overcome. And I think George Osborne just lost patience that it was ever going to return to uh, the in price of £5 anytime soon and decided that actually he says that holding on was starting to damage both the economy because it was holding back lending but also the taxpayers' interests and the bank itself. By starting off the sale process, it also releases shares, therefore creating a larger free float and therefore hopefully enticing more investors to pile in as there's greater liquidity. So there is that element as well. And as other experts suggest, RBS is one of a number of other privatised assets that will be ultimately sold off, hopefully at a benefit to the taxpayer. I guess just finally, there's a model example, which is Lloyd's, where you know the government started selling at about the in price. But since then, it's been able to sell quite rapidly down from 42% to below 14% just this week at increasingly profitable prices for the taxpayer. So as the government has been selling, so the price has gone up, so the return to the taxpayer has improved. So hopefully, the same thing will happen with RBS. Emma, thanks very much. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Richard, Emma and Lindsay for their contributions and to thank you for listening. We'll now be taking a break for the rest of August and return on September the 1st. Remember, in the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. 
Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next month, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.